0: Oh, hey, man. The following podcast is going to contain some pretty far-out adult conversations, righteous adult language, and some pretty solid spoilers, if you dig. So, like, if that sounds groovy to you, man, you might dig this. Otherwise, you best mellow out to the beat of a different drum, you know what I'm saying? On sight! We're back for yet another episode of They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. We're at 59 uh, official episodes now. Uh, I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I am joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm uh, doing just fine right now. Excellent. Are, are you anticipating it getting worse during the podcast? or is uh...
1: Well, um, you know, really, uh, watching this film just kind of reminds me of uh, you know, all the oppressive power structures that are aligned against me.
0: Um, and so, uh, you know,
1: you never know what's going to happen. You know, um, yeah. you know, a, a a cop might beat down my door and eat all my weed, you know,
0: uh, all <laughs> yeah, my, that... all my
1: incredibly AstroTurf looking weed.
0: You know? Yeah, that happens a lot. Well, at least you uh, have some fine scotch.
1: I do have some fine yeah. scotch. And uh should be noted, I don't smoke weed. Just, you know, my job does not allow oh. me. To do such things. But I do have some fine scotch. I have some
0: Laphroaig quarter cask
1: because uh, the capitalist system was good to me today, and I got paid. So I got to go buy some nice scotch.
0: Most excellent. Uh, I'm just waiting for my uh, fat little tax return to come around, and I'm going to be buying some uh, uh Ugandal, I guess it's pronounced. Mm. which Nice. Is, which is supposed to be the Ardbeg of Ardbegs, apparently. So
1: <laughs> I've heard very nice things.
0: Mm. But right now, I'm just drinking a nice little session uh, ale, India Session Ale, I guess. Uh, but uh,
1: Well, I have a Founders All Day IPA kind of up on deck. and I'm, My plan is to basically finish the scotch and then just wash the beer into the scotch
0: glass. Uh, well, that's just... a better idea than just going for straight makers. believe me. <laughs> 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 that is something you don't want to do. You don't want to be like I was one time, uh, crawling... In a rainstorm so heavy that the rain actually hurt as it hits you, and basically falling in every puddle on your way home, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thankfully, I am home, so yeah. I don't have to worry about it but um, I'd rather not get completely shit faced tonight, although it might fit the the theme of the film, so you know
0: yeah, in, in a way, it does, doesn't it. We are gonna be looking at inherent vice from twenty fourteen here uh in a little bit uh we do have a minor bit of housekeeping to go through so uh first thing I'll mention for uh anyone who's wondering, Paul will be back with us pretty soon. I was Fuck. talking to <laughs> I was talking to him tonight, and he not only will he be back he'll uh, actually have internet connection to his uh residence. So he'll no longer be so isolated from the rest of the world that uh, you actually have to start an expedition to find out where he lives and get to his house. And um, he'll actually uh, have Netflix. So uh, now he can fast forward through basically anything we pick for. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that'll be good. Uh, We miss you, Paul. And uh, we hope to get you back for the uh, sci fi uh, little mini sci fi break we're doing in the next couple episodes. So looking forward to that. We do have one comment I want to get to from our Facebook group. We do have a Facebook group, by the way. Have you heard of that one, uh, Dan, the, the Facebook group?
1: I, I've heard of it. And I occasionally even post on it, believe yeah. it or not. I will yeah. occasionally post random thoughts that I have, um, drunkenly sprawling notes onto pages, trying to <laughs> plot summaries. You know? I do occasionally see those things. Uh, you, should, you should go check us out and uh, chat with us. It is the best way to reach us, really.
0: It is. It is the single best way to reach us. And we try our best to respond to everything. So, um, yeah, he does. I don't give a fuck what anybody has to say. So. <laughs> and he's just slugging down the scotch.
1: <laughs> it's been that kind of week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, our good friend Mike Murphy from the Badass Boobs and Body Count podcast, uh, just yeah. made a brief comment saying that. And, oh, next time you visit the noir genre, my God, people, do Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. We will fulfill that request at some point. I don't know if necessarily we'll stick it into our next time we do uh, film noir, although that film does loosely sort of fit that genre, although it's more of an 80s B-horror film with uh, two prominent screen queens from the time, uh, Linnea Quigley and uh, Michelle Bauer. And it's also got uh, Leatherface himself, Gunnar Hansen, in, in that as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, we we will be doing it at some point, uh, guarantee. Actually, I'm kind of thinking we might even do this like a little mini, uh, Scream Queens of the '80s kind of break or something like that. Do do a few of their films because they're 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 easy watches for the most part, and we could probably like cover like even three films an episode. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe after we do uh the sex comedy series just uh, do uh do two or three episodes of that. Yeah, it works for
0: me. Yeah, so we're uh, never
1: going to do spaghetti westerns, are we? It's just never <laughs> ever going to happen.
0: I'm I'm just so hesitant because I I want the spaghetti western series to be really fucking great. So I'm I'm just I have been doing prep work now for like literally since the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's been like, what, a year and a half, two years now? Something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I
1: mean, we've literally been talking about doing Spaghetti Westerns, like The Great Silence. Before mm-hmm. we even started doing this podcast, we're like, well, we've got to do The Great Silence. Yep. It's got to be done. Once Upon a Time in the West, we have to talk about this movie at some point. I've been holding off rewatching Once Upon a Time in the West specifically because I know we're going to do it on this podcast. <laughs> and yet we, we somehow never have. Yeah. We've done Busty Cops. But not Once Upon a Time in the West. So, uh.
0: if, if, if we get to the point where we do Busty Cops 2 <laughs> before we do this, then uh, I think this podcast is, will have taken a, a dire uh, change in direction. But, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we will eventually get to it. So uh, thanks for the suggestion there, Mike. I know once Paul's back, he'll definitely be up for uh, doing that uh, that movie. So it'll be a lot of fun. I don't have anything that I've watched in the last little while, so I have nothing to mention. I know you have one thing you want to mention there, Daniel, so I'll get, let you go right to it.
1: Uh, yeah I just uh, watched actually this afternoon I watched a, a little movie from 1973 I was uh, I had heard of it and I was kind of anticipating maybe kind of watching it and thinking we might do it as a sex comedy but it's not really a comedy and there's not really a lot of sex in it well there is and there isn't um, it's actually a movie called The Herod experiment um, this is a kind of uh, teenager movie it's actually got um, none other than James Whitmore as a uh, uh, sort of the Dean of a college called Harrod University, H uh, A R R A D, and um, he's uh, basically making a college that is an experience, uh, experiments in free love. So he he uh, there's a very limited kind of first class that he's kind of bringing into this uh, school, and uh, they're um, trying to kind of. Negotiate the boundaries of like societal expectation and that sort of thing. Quite a bit of uh, kind of nudity in the film. Um, the version I watched is the uncut version, which has the all the uh, nudity bits kind of cut back into it, very um, haphazardly with uh, kind of <laughs> film stock. Like you always knew, know there's nudity about to happen when the film stock downgrades several, uh, wow. you know, <laughs> several notches. Um, so it hasn't been uh, like recolor corrected or anything. But um, you know, hey, I, I, I pirated a version. Uh, sorry herald experiment filmmakers but that movie is 43
0: years old so they're probably all Um, dead by now so
1: (laughs) it's kind of an interesting cultural artifact more than it is like an interesting film i think it's uh probably the most notable thing is it has a young don johnson oh really and uh you do get to see don johnson's johnson on on several occasions (laughs) so if that's something you're interested in doing i mean this is one of his very first films um he's a, a charming motherfucker in it i don't know it's it's fine. It's not really, don't, don't, don't seek it out unless you have some interest in, you know, what, you know, kind of late period counterculture, um, nudie flicks looked like. Um, it's a very pleasant movie, you know, it's kind of like everyone in the film just kind of acts with compassion towards each other. Um, there's very little like real drama in it until the very end. And it's much more melodrama. Um, it really drops the ball on really trying to explore some of these issues. Um, so, uh, I, I you know I'm not sorry I watched it, but I wouldn't recommend it really to people. I mean, it, it, unless you want to see, you know, there, there's some nudity in it, um, male and female, Tippy Hedron's in it, um, hmm. and she gets down to a brawn panties, so that's something that you're interested in seeing. But yeah, no, that that's that's about it. I mean, I I literally watched it this afternoon, and I'm still struggling to remember details from it. It, it really is just <laughs> like very, very uh, kind of generic early '70s softcore porn. With a conscience, you know, like like that sort of thing, but it's it's really it's kind of interesting, but there's not much to it, so it's very thin.:
0: I'm a little torn on Don Johnson. I actually really like him as an actor, but at the same time, he was in the cringeworthy Nash Bridges for so many years that basically is the show that destroyed homicide life on the streets. so right. I yeah. kind of hate him for that.
1: <laughs> but but when... you know I, I wonder if he hadn't become a big star, like kind of that big TV star. I wonder if he might have had a more interesting career, you know. Um you know, I look at him in um you know, Django Unchained and he's so um he's so good in that like little short segment mm-hmm. there. Um I think he would have had a a longer career as a character actor, you know. Um and you see him like really, really young. You see him here in, like, A Boy and His Dog, or you see him in, you know, The Herod Experiment, and he's just, you know, he he actually reminds me a little bit of, like, um, John Johnston in 73 reminds me a lot of Matthew McConaughey in, like, Days to Confused. Oh, yeah. Um, He's got got a very similar kind of vibe, you know, a little bit less, a little bit less stoner, a little bit, you know, more kind of just generic all-American boy, but but a very kind of similar performance style, very laconic, you know, so, um, uh, you know. It, it might be worth checking out if you're a Don Johnson fan. It might be worth checking out just f- just for him. I mean, he, you can definitely kind of see, like, oh, this guy might be a star down the line, you know. Uh, but yeah. um, but there's just not much there, you know. It's just kind of yeah, it's 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 there. It was 97 minutes long. It it passed quickly. Um,
0: yeah. Although although we are sort of closing out our uh, initial sort of look at uh, noir and stuff, um, I, I will mention uh, recommend that uh, I, I already recommended this once, I think, on the podcast, but. Don Johnson is in uh, Cold in July that came came out a year ago or so, which is an excellent little neo-noir. It's also got the uh, – what's his name from Dexter? I keep forgetting his goddamn name. Michael but, C. Hall? Yeah, Michael C. Hall. And it's got Sam Shepard as well in it. Uh, it's it's, ama- it's It's got some really good twists in it, some really unexpected twists. And it is based on a book by Joe Lansdale, which is one of my favorite writers. He's probably, in my opinion, one of the – premier sort of um, weird fiction slash noir slash horror writers in the last 20 30 years so uh, it is actually really good and it's actually nice. on Netflix right now i think so
1: well i may have to i mean that that i mean you, you kind of had me with the cast I and mean, i'm like oh yeah mm-hmm. I, I can see you watching this so uh, i may very well i say right. that a lot and then i actually forget to go and watch them <laughs> i like i literally while you're talking about it i'm like typing i have like the File that I have my plot summaries in, and I just like threw the title in there so I can go back and look at it later. And then I'll forget it until I'm writing next week's plot summaries. And then I'll say, "Oh, I was supposed to watch that movie."
0: You know? Oh, I thought you were just uh, going to say, "Oh, that's last week's plot summary file. Delete."
1: <laughs> no, I, I actually i have a i have an extended uh, i have a ten page uh, text file that just has uh, all the uh, plot summaries I've done so far in it. So uh, I think there was a joke that I might turn these into a book at some point. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think anyone would actually read it. Certainly, certainly, they, I wouldn't. I don't think
0: anyone should read it. People read Fifty Shades of Grey, so they'll read anything.
1: Fifty Shades of Grey might have better prose than my plot summary.
0: Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but but think significantly
1: so. <laughs> less sadomasochistic sex.
0: So you know there is, there is an, uh, actually you know, if it's the Blue Velvet plot summary, that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know,
1: unfortunately, I didn't I didn't include that element in my inherent vice discussion. Uh, at least in the plot summary, but uh, we might end up discussing it. We'll I see. think we'll I'll, get to it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where this conversation's going to go. I, I'm I'm actually kind of interested to see where we're going to go with
0: this. Um, I'll just mention one more thing. Uh, since I mentioned Homicide Life on the Street, uh, you and I have been sort of uh, tentatively planning to uh, do uh, the Homicide series.
1: Yeah, um, I think uh, that's something. I mean, let's tell as it to it, the audience now. I think that's going to happen. I think we're yeah. um, here, in a, here in a month or two. We're going to start doing um, Homicide Life on the Streets as a kind of um, every other week or so, um, kind of when we get around to it, kind of podcast where we'll mm-hmm. do um, kind of a season like 6 weeks and we'll do a season or something and and just kind of um you know kind of go from there and that'll be kind of a, a long term kind of sporadic project um mm-hmm. th- that'll be a, as part of the US Space Man family. So uh look forward to that when we get that off the ground and that should be um hopefully I mean I'm I'm thinking you know kind of kind of let the uh, the current shape of US Space Man kind of settle a little bit more and then kind of uh, before we start adding trying to add mm-hmm. more stuff to it. Yeah. But yeah, now here in a couple months I think we can uh, we can probably get something going with
0: that yeah uh I'm, I'm definitely excited to do that i love that yeah. show so much <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, but, have you lead on that then that's a you know
1: it'll, it, or, you know we'll figure it out yeah, uh, that, yeah that was something we literally just started chatting about and then we both thought it was a really great idea so we've done no like pre-planning on this at all except like oh yeah we should do that that's great
0: um, yeah uh okay i guess we can just uh move on to our movie for tonight and we're going to be talking about inherent Vice from 2014 it's the tail end of the psychedelic 60s
2: and paranoia is running the day if it isn't charlie manson it's the lapd or the fbi or the mysterious body of something called the golden fang so
3: what's all this now
2: Everything's gone from groovy to where you at man suggesting a high level of fear or discomfort with the way things are headed <laughs> hey, This is Doc Sportello. He's a private investigator. Whoa, are you all right am I are you? And like a peculiar planet in today's horoscope. In through the door walks Doc's ex-old lady Shasta and those five little words. I need your help, Doc. Look out, sir, Here the whole Let's go. It's too bad that fear should be running sunny Southern California as in days of old. Like the Watts Riots or the Hollywood Blacklist. <laughs> Look at the greedy little hippie. But every once in a while, a hero like Doc Sportello shows up to help salvage his generation and guide it back to more merciful shores.
4: Is that a swastika on that man's face? No, it isn't. That's an ancient Hindu symbol, meaning all is well.
2: You'll just want to see the movie Inherent Vice.
0: Directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Written by Paul Thomas Anderson as far as screenplay goes and based on the novel by Thomas Pinchon. Starring Joaquin Phoenix as Larry Doc Sportello. Joss Brolin as Doctor... Uh, Doctor... Detective... Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson. Owen Wilson as Coy Harlington. Katherine Watterson as Shasta Fay Hepworth. These names are fucking ridiculous, by the way. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon as Deputy D.A. Penny Kimball. Benicio Del Toro as Sancho Smilex Esquire. Jenna Malone as Hope Harlington. Joanna Newsom as Sortilege if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Probably not. Maya Rudolph as uh, Petuna Leeway. Michelle Sinclair, uh, also known as Bella Donna in some circles, as Clancy Sharlock. I don't know anything uh, about those circles and we'll not be discussing them later. Of course. Uh, Martin Short uh, as Dr. Rudy Blatnoid. Peter McRobie as Adrian Prussia. Eric Roberts as Michael Z. Wolfman. A lot of these names are like weird puns and jokes. And I... <laughs> and, uh, I, I could name a lot more, but man, this cast is fucking big. Uh.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's kind of one of the issues I ran into constructing this plot summary that I'm about to read. Um so it's it's kind of an anti plot summary in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that uh just before we get started that um Thomas Wichon is well known for this. All of his books have uh oddball character names um just thrown throughout. There's a minor character in his two thousand six epic uh thousand page sprawling uh, novel that takes place between the years of about 1893 and 1920 uh, or so mm-hmm. uh who is um the king of um you know in, in the in the he's called the burger king b-u-r-g-h-e-r <laughs> the burger king and he reappears over and over again in this novel um the the mixture of kind of high and low culture is something that Pinchon is is very much known for. So so yes, the 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 character names are you kind of it sets the stage for the world. It's something that you kind of have to just go with or not. Mm-hmm. Like um, and, and if you think it's a little bit distracting in the film, <laughs> the books. I mean, it's very in your face in the novel. It's 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 a very um you know it's it's uh, one of his techniques. But um, uh, yeah, I've read almost all of his books, so I can talk a little bit about that when we get there. But right now. Uh, should I go ahead and, uh, and read this not plot summary, plot summary? Yes, indeed. Okay. Los Angeles, 1970. A world compromised by greed, by crushing inequality, by the powerful squares giving their kicks punching hippies. In this setting, Larry Doc Sportello Joaquin Phoenix is our Marlowe figure, a doper with a conscience, struggling for a semblance of authenticity in a world of condominiums and Adam-12 reruns. Into his life walks the glorious Shasta Faye, Catherine Waterston, an ex-old lady, maybe the ex-old lady, who's maybe, maybe not gotten herself in a bit of trouble. Shasta is shacked up with real estate big-shot Mickey Wolfman, Eric Roberts, whose biggest problem, aside from being, in the words of our narrator, sortilege, Joanna Newsom, a Jew who wants to be a Nazi, is that his wife and her lover are hatching a complicated scheme to get him into the booby hatch in order to take his money. Shasta Fay isn't exactly against the idea, you understand, but still she's got enough reservations to ask Portilla to do what he can to help her out. Call that case number one. Case number two comes about when Sportello was approached at his office by black militant Tariq Khalil, Michael K. Williamson, a former bodyguard of Wolfmans, who was looking for a man named Glenn Charlock, who owes him some money. Charlock and Khalil formally met in prison, and despite Charlock's connection to the Aryan Brotherhood, it turns out that the two men seemingly on opposite ends of ideological spectrum had, in Khalil's words, similar views on the U.S. government. So it goes. Case number three also falls into Doc's lap, as he's approached by the young Hope Harlington, Jenna Malone, a former dope addict with the young child named Amethyst, whose father, Coy Harlingen, Owen Wilson, has apparently been killed by a drug operation called the Golden Fang. But given that Hope has very recently come into a very large deposit in her checking account, she has reason to doubt the reality of that situation. She wants Doc to go check it out and see what he can find. Three cases, a compromised and broken world besieged by right-wing assholes, and a doper private eye. From these factors, the rest of the film follows confusingly, but somehow also neatly, with its dozen or so major characters with names like Sancho Smilax, Benicio Del Toro, Rudy Blatnoid, Martin Short, and Adrian Prussia, Peter McRobbie, just to name three. The web of connections rivals that of the obvious spiritual antecedent The Big Sleep, but like that film, the plot's not really the point. The mood, the characters, and above all, the ruins, the broken dreams of the counterculture reign supreme. Along the way, Doc is assisted by a former friend-turned-cop, Lieutenant Christian Bigfoot Bjorns and Josh Brolin. The two come from opposite sides of the ideological fence but seem to have a wary and measured respect for one another. The degree to which Bigfoot can be trusted, even after his connection to Sportillo gets Doc and the gang out of one hell of a moving violation, is very much an open question, all the way into the final frames of the film. And how does the film end? With a lone shark dead, a relationship maybe restored, a capitalist performed and then lost to brainwashing, a jazz musician returned to his family, and a pretty young Chinese whore, I use the term with respect, probably still selling Pussy Eater specials for 1995. (laughs) Our heroes get out alive, for now, but the forces that threaten them still loom, as they do for all of us, and don't you forget that none of this means that, quote unquote, you and I are getting back together again.
0: (laughs) Nice, I like that. (laughs) Very well written.
1: Thank you. It helps to sit down and actually watch this two hour and 35 minute film or two hour and 38 minute film over the course of about six hours writing notes and pausing every 90 seconds or so. It <laughs> actually it actually does. I mean, so, so not to jump ahead and kind of give my thoughts, but the film, I've seen it three or four times now. And until I actually sat down with a notebook intentionally trying to understand the plot for the plot summary... I did not care what was really going on in the plot. It's about the kind of mood. The novel's the same way. All of Pinchon's novels. Like, I have no idea what's actually going on plot-wise in Gravity's Rainbow. A lot is the big answer I have. It's a brilliant book. It's one of my favorite books, and I have no idea what's actually going on. (laughs) It's all about kind of the ideas and the mood and the atmosphere and this kind of general sense of kind of political stuff. Um, which which I'll get into a little bit here with Inherent Vice. So it, the film does, I, I'm not saying it improves the film to understand what's going on. I, I think it's a richer experience now that I know what's going on, but I'm not sure that it's necessary to the film. But um, I'm actually, I actually uh, wasn't, Trying to, to step on your toes here. I actually wanted you to go first and talk about the film because I know we had kind of talked to the back channel and you were saying that you had actually kind of cooled on this film a little bit um, because yeah. I think we both really liked it upon first seeing it. So yeah, why don't you take your podcast back and and you uh, <laughs> talk about stuff or something?
0: Yeah. Well, the f- the very first time I saw this, I absolutely loved it. I was just basically swept away by sort of the the acting, uh, the visuals, the the flow of it. I, I was drinking at the time when I was watching it i'll I'll say that there, so I was definitely enjoying it uh it, it, I was in a state where I didn't mind that the movie was two and a half hours long or whatever it is right I watched it a second time, dead sober and became confused. I watched it uh one more time this week for the podcast, not quite as confused, but now I kind of find i think I do have some issues with this, but overall, I do still like the film but When I first watched it, I actually put this on um, my honorable mentions for our best that we watched in 2015. I probably would not put it on there anymore. I just felt like there was maybe a bit too much cutesy shit going on, and I felt like the length of the film really hurt it because there's just too many characters and too many little plots going on to the point where it's distracting from the main plot for me. And even watching it sober and starting to pick up what's going on, I still felt like the film was almost intentionally trying to distract me and send me in other directions that it didn't need to. I felt like there was probably too many minor characters jumping in and out that weren't even given their due. And so they just kind of felt like more distractions to me. But, you know, overall, I think the acting in this is incredibly strong. Um, I like how these characters are... Essentially, caricatures in, in in a lot of ways. They're they're very broadly done, but the actual acting from everyone in here, especially the principals, is very naturalistic, very low key in in a lot of ways. Which is which is a weird kind of balance that that the film does. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is mumbling his way through this for the most part, and I mean, I know a lot of people who talk like this, like people talk. This is how people really talk in in real life. It, this isn't. Tarantino dialogue. This isn't snappy pop culture dialogue that's, you know, supposed to keep you going, uh, catch your catch your brain, and, and keep it flowing with the, with the dialogue. This is, it's interesting dialogue. You actually have to pay attention to it. You have to listen to what the people are saying. Uh, you almost need subtitles for Joaquin Phoenix, basically, because he really is, like, it's such a low register here talking like, well,
1: when I, when I watched it, um, for the plot summary, I, I, I found a subtitle file and watched it with subtitles. There was, there was no way I was going to attempt this without subtitles. Um, so yeah. that does, that does help the, uh, my enjoyment of the film is to is just to actually be able to read kind of what they're saying during certain things because uh, Pinchon's writing in general, um, basically all the text that um, Joanna Newsom uh, as as narration uh, that the sword edge character, um, yeah, basically all of her uh, narration is taken directly from the book as as near as I can remember. Particularly the, the kind of stuff at the beginning, any of the kind of wry commentary on the events, any of the kind of um, you know kind of plot moving around that the narration does, and so you do get a sense of. Of kind of what the novel would was like um, a little bit, Pinchon writes in that style always. like, like, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's very, um, people who are first exposed to it find it to be this really kind of aggressive, almost oppressive reading style. Either, either you kind of get to it immediately and you're just like, I love this, this is exactly what I want. Um, but he's very um, good at kind of using cir- circumlocution in terms of his uh, kind of descriptions, in terms of uh, the dialogue to uh, make the familiar unfamiliar. And I think that that's a lot of what some of the dialogue is trying to do. I mean, certainly in the kind of the opening sequence, where uh, Shasta Faye, uh, kind of uh, approaches Doc and, and is kind of, um, they're, they're kind of having this guarded back and forth with each other, you know, and yeah. they're kind of sniping each other a little bit, but it's it's not done in this kind of direct way. It's done in a in a very, uh, you know, uh, you know, he said, you know, she, she, he, he refers to her as like, uh, you know, the bare ass and uh, naked at one point, you know, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the best way that, that he, she can, um, you know, basically what she does best, you know, there there's a lot of that kind of stuff
0: well i uh, i was gonna i was gonna ask you um do you feel like that having that character who uh and i and i, I think this is correct she was she was a very minor character in the actual book uh the uh, salon the, so the so end, so sure. so
1: i don't remember i mean honestly i've only read the book once and and rewatching the film this time i did um i kind of had this vague thought of rereading the book before we recorded mm-hmm. today. Um, I just didn't have the, the time this week to do it. And and even though we had planned this a few weeks ago, I've just been, you know, kind of busy with other things and didn't have yeah, the, chance, yeah, yeah. the time to kind of dig back into this book. Um, so I actually don't remember. I don't
0: think she's a, she's a major character in the
1: novel. I think she's yeah. just a very sideline character.
0: From what I understand by reading this, she was basically given more in this film uh, because, to become the narrator and to put more of Pinchon's uh, narration on the actual film. Now, i I got to ask you, do you feel like this narration helps the film at all? Because I personally felt like that was one of my biggest problems with the film, was that the narration was taking me away from watching the film, in a, in a way. I, I felt like it was giving me too much information. I felt like I wanted to watch the film and get from the performances because the performances were that strong that I could get the tension, the backstory between characters that I didn't need this narration telling me what was going on. And I, it almost felt like that was put in there for more of a general audience almost. And not that I'm saying that the, the dialogue, the actual writing, the narration was bad, bad because I like all this, like this makes me want to read Pinchon's stuff now because I really like the way his stuff flows but I felt like with the film, it kind of it was kind of intrusive to me, and uh, I, I don't know.
1: I I see your point on that. I mean, I'm trying to kind of I'm trying to kind of think through my feelings on it. I I can see where you're coming from in terms of kind of wanting it to stand alone. I mean, the way something like um, the Master does, uh, you know, in, in his previous film, P.T. Anderson kind of a. Uh, didn't um, use any kind of narration really of any kind and, and kind of let you just kind of watch the characters kind of interact mm-hmm. and kind of draw your own conclusions about what's going on. A lot of people also found that film to be really um, abstract. And, and uh, that, that was one of the worst reviewed films of his career, probably the worst reviewed film of his career. And I, and I wonder if there was an impulse to kind of push away from that yeah. um, just a little bit and to, and to try to kind of bring it with a little bit more of uh you know, to kinda of, to kinda of give some of that uh context. I, I think that often the narration works in counterpoint to the imagery in the film as opposed to, you know, it's not kind of explaining what's happening as much as it's trying to give a, a sort of um ideological tinge. It's also just an attempt to kind of I think bring Pinchon's language in, you know, and certainly mm-hmm. when you when you you have a, a writer like uh, Pinchon who uh, is so reclusive; he's not been photographed in fifty years. Yeah. Um, when you have someone who is who has finally decided to let someone make a, you know, filmmaker's have been trying to make Gravity's Rainbow for since seventy three, since that that novel was first <laughs> published, and uh, he's he's never he's he's always refused. And uh, the second I saw um, there will be blood, um, that was when I was reading through a lot of Pinchon, and I was like, this P.T. Anderson is the person to make a, a to turn the world into into cinema um so i think there was just maybe a thought of like let's let's just bring some of that language in and actually mm-hmm. let people kind of expose people to the language it doesn't distract me i understand why it why it might distract you um i also think that i approach this film when i on a more um kind of big picture level i'm not necessarily looking at you know character interaction as much as i mean that that kind of um ideological kind of culture clash component is I think mm-hmm. for me, what I come out of the film with. And I think that that's the stuff that the, the narration that the uh, sort character is really bringing into the film. I mean, um, one of her first big moments, um, she's actually talking about basically all the locations in LA that were stolen from the, you know, yeah. ethnic minorities and that sort of thing. I mean, that that's, you know, she's literally just kind of sitting and riding in a car and kind of like, Oh, and over there, there's this thing, you know, the, this great, uh, you know, Los Angeles landmark that was a, uh, you know stolen for you know built on land that was stolen for black people you know 400 years ago and that sort of thing <laughs> so um, there's a uh, there's a sense of uh, you know that that's what this character is really giving she is kind of the voice of uh you know the voice of God in a way and the voice of you know I mean she's the one who who operates the Ouija board and the and the that kind yeah. of day in the rain and that sort of thing so I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you necessarily I mean I yeah. I, I kind of I see where you're coming from it doesn't bother me and I and I think the reason it doesn't bother me is because I'm looking for something different from the film than you are.
0: Yeah, that, that works for me. To be honest, that's just sort of a minor quibble I have. I may, I, I think my biggest problem with the film is still the length mm-hmm. and the amount of stuff going on that I think could have been cut out. And and I, I kind of get the sense that Paul Thomas Anderson is such a Pinchon fan that he wanted to get as much of Pinchon's book on screen as possible. So I think maybe he just went a little crazy and and dumped a lot of stuff on on the film.
1: Apparently in the writing process, he literally adapted the whole book line for line and then cut it based on, you know, kind of what you could realistically do on screen. So, so, uh, and I can understand that. I mean, reading, I can like the way I constructed my plot summary was like essentially diagramming the whole movie and then like piecing it together piecemeal and kind of cutting stuff out. So, I mean, I kind of went through a similar process in terms of you know, yeah. <laughs> just talking, just summarizing the the story of the movie. I mean, you know, self indulgent is the easiest thing to accuse someone of PT. Uh-huh. You know, um, to some degree, I think you're either on board with the film or you're not. Um, I think that um, there is this sort of thing, and I'll and I'll, I'm not I'm not trying to speak for you here, but one of the things I noticed in the plot on this on this on this uh, kind of watch through is the the overarching plot of the Shasta faye Sportello relationship kinda ends halfway through. I mean you kinda get, you know, Shastafe comes back and then they're kind of together but not together but together but not together. And then essentially Spartilla says, ah, oh, but I still gotta go, you know, do this thing. I really feel bad about this this guy who's uh, you know, kinda under the control of these the this cult essentially and this this kind of, you know, uh right wing paramilitary organization. I wanna go I wanna go help him out. Similarly to to kind of in the big sleep, you know, where where Marlowe kind of doesn't let the case go and that sort of yeah. thing. Um so I think there is that element to where you know the, the kind of the over, the main plot kind of ends, and then but but there's still you know kind of forty five minutes of movie left, and I yeah. think that because the structure of the uh, I mean, just kind of the, the overarching experience of the film is to kind of get lost in the moment. You're, you're always kind of, you never remember more than two minutes behind you or t- yeah. thinking more than two minutes ahead, like during the making, during the, during watching the film, at least for me, I'm, I'm always in that kind of state. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of always in the now with this film. That uh, I, I think that when you kind of get unmoored from that kind of driving plot, uh, it does start to feel like now, now where are we going again? Um, what's <laughs> happening? Why, why are we chained to a radiator? Why is this guy giving him, um, you know, pure great heroin at this point? You know, what, <laughs> you know who who is who the fuck is Adrian Prussia? Uh, I mean, there is that kind of uh, element to it where yeah, there is a well, whole other plot that shows up in the last. Uh, yeah, that's,
0: that's one of my biggest problems with it is that, it, that sort of just jumps out at you. I mean. If they had spent the whole plot like hinting at Adrian Prussia and talking about him, you know, and and not seeing him, you know, that's fine. You don't have to see him because that just builds up anticipation. But it just comes out of left field to a certain degree. It just feels like it kind of creeps up out of nowhere. So the novel for this was written when seventy.
1: No, no, the novel is actually the novel is two thousand nine.
0: Oh, is it? So, oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah.
1: So um, Thomas Pachan has written, uh, I'll actually name them all. Um, his okay. first novel was okay. B, um, and then Crying a Lot 49. Those are both in the um, mid 60s, late 60s. And you get, uh, in then you get Gravity's Rainbow in 73. Then you get, I'm hoping I'm not going to miss one. He did do Slow Learner, which was a series of short stories in 84, which was kind of a collection. Then Vineland in 1990. Then uh, Mason and Dixon, which is actually set with the people writing, drawing the Mason-Dixon line in the 18th century and is written in a parody of 18th century prose, which tells you a lot about uh, Thomas Pachana's writer (laughs) in 97. Then you get um, Against the Day in 06, and then Inherent Vice in 09. So uh, and then his most recent novel, which I haven't read, is just a couple of years ago, I think 2012 or something like that. So oh. the reason I say that is that he had a long career with kind of lots of breaks and he hasn't written that many novels. Inherent Vice reminds me a lot of his very first kind of novella, The Crying a Lot 49, uh, probably where I would recommend people start with Ben because it's mm-hmm. it's obviously the shortest and, it, and it's kind of contemporaneous with these sorts of ideas just because i was kind of a penchon super fan you know around around 2007 2008 i can uh i can tell you there was a um terrible documentary a terrible terrible documentary (laughs) Called a uh, Thomas Pinchon, a journey into the mind of P. And I, uh, in doing research for this, I found out it is on it is on YouTube. You can watch it. Um, it is incredibly pretentious. You think I'm pretentious? This thing is like the most pretentious fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's <laughs> kind of a, a mystery in terms of like we're going to go like seek out and try to find Thomas Pinchon, but we're going to do it in the most like kind of artsy fartsy uh, way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of lots of shots of um, kind of black and white train cars and that sort thing uh, with (laughs) kind of droning narration. Um, I watched the thing out of like sheer fascination for like how bad is this going to be? And I think I actually had to rent it from Netflix back in the day. But um, the probably the one um, kind of saving grace is they actually interview some people who knew him back in the '60s and '70s, um, back before he was quite as reclusive. I mean, he was still reclusive, but they they interviewed an old girlfriend and they kind of went to like some of his old addresses, and the uh, like Sportello's place, like the, that that kind of spot on the beach that you kind of see is kind of the opening shot of the film. Yeah. That is, if not the location, that's that's very similar to the space where uh, Pinchon lived back in the 60s and right. back in this time. Um, I think Inherent Vice is probably um, uh, the noir kind of private eye stuff is kind of welded on top of something that is I think really autobiographical in terms of hmm. uh, you know, the, the world that Pinchon lived in at this time. And so I think that's why it kind of feels contemporaneous as it is kind of his memories now from you know that that era and then kind of reinterpreted through another filmmaker, but it feels very authentic to me in terms of in terms of you know this kind of like comic distillation of this world that he actually lived in at the time sorry I, that that's kind of giving a lot of detail you didn't necessarily ask for, but, no, but I think that that's yeah. that's important to to kind of understanding that this film is it is someone i mean even in even in crying of lot forty nine he's kind of decrying this uh, so again, you think I'm pretentious. A journey into the mind of P is incredibly pretentious. If you think I'm a left winger, <laughs> Thomas Benchon is like this, uh, is, is, you know, I'm, I've become increasingly familiar with the radical left. If you think I'm a radical leftist, you have no idea. <laughs> I am a very <laughs> kind of moderate milk toasty kind of guy on so many issues. The, the, the uh, radical left is literally, um, you know, Thomas Benchon's, uh, one of his big complaints about like the, the political world it dates back to the Enclosure Act of, of the seventeenth century. You know, he, he's literally kind of arguing that far back that things have been that fucked up for that long. I mean, he's, he's a you know explicitly anti-capitalist, um, probably um, well, anarchist. I, I would, I would, you know, it's hard to kind of tell exactly what his politics are, but I, I would suspect a kind of anarcho-syndicalist um, sort of guy. Um, and the film is ultimately about the fact that, or you know, his novels. What what comes back over and over again is that there is this kind of secret world underneath that is um, you know these kind of secret societies that have uh, manipulated kind of the rest of us over the course of our lives and uh, in inherent vice that in in the film that kind of plays out in terms of the counterculture that the hippies the dopers the the sex fiends all these people kind of at the the bottom rungs of society these are the people that have been kind of destroyed by mainstream society Mm -hmm. but they are ultimately I mean (laughs) the hippies were right like by and large, you know, marijuana is not bad for you. <laughs> um, you know, Nixon was a monster. You know, the, the basic mainstream uh, social constructions were, um, you know, incredibly repressive to so many people. Um, the hippies were by and large right on, on a whole, whole host of issues. And I think that what kind of Pinchon's whole career has been about is like saying the left is right, but we failed. Like we fundamentally just failed. And that's something that we kind of talked about. Or I talked about it a bit when we got even in like night moves in the conversation when we're talking mm-hmm. about this kind of early '70s mm-hmm. kind of um, Nixon era stuff. That it was even when it was made in the day, you really got that sense of the, this kind of malaise. And I think Panchanda's kind of had his finger on that even before it was really like even at the height of the the, the kind of hippie revolution, there was the sense that it was all gonna fall.
0: I, I got a bit of a sense of that watching the film as well um basically just the whole kind of mood of the film kind of reminded me of the hunter s Thompson uh, tide speech where you know where he saw where it rolled back you know and uh, yeah that and there definitely it definitely does play on the sort of the aftermath of the failure of of the sort of hippie movement and all that stuff and the free love and peace and all that shit. So, has Pinchon ever stated that he had based anything from this book on like The Long Goodbye, what either the actual film or uh the the actual uh book back in the day Cause
1: uh I mean it's it's very I mean it's pretty obviously modeled on Chandler's mm-hmm. writing. Um, you know, I think I think there are um very clear connections to The Long Goodbye. Um Pinchon doesn't give interviews. He he just does uh. um, you know, uh, so, so th- there is kind of that. I, I don't, you know, I've never seen him give an interview. He has appeared on The Simpsons, uh, but has <laughs> never given an interview. Um, uh, the rumor is that he actually appears in this film somewhere.
0: That's what I've um, seen. Yeah, you know, there, there's
1: some, there's some talk that apparently he is somewhere in the background of some shot in this film, and I mean, you know, the devotees have spent, you know, hours and hours combing through it and figuring well, out which is it, is old it guy. Is it a- guy
0: isn't it like uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Josh Brolin were both like saying, "Oh yeah, he was here and he was he was talking to PT Anderson about all this stuff," and then PT Anderson later on was like poo pooed all that and said, "No, we had no contact while making the film and and he was never on the film and uh, don't talk about it anymore." And uh,
1: <laughs> I, you know, no, he's, uh, you know. I'm sure that, I'm sure that uh, Pinchon really wanted to, I mean, he's obviously very guarded with his privacy and, his mm-hmm. and by not being a public figure, he can go about his day to day life. I mean, especially yes. in like the seventies when gravity's rainbow blew up. I mean, this was this huge phenomenon of a novel. Um, gravity's rainbow was actually um, basically won the Pulitzer, except for one person on the Pulitzer prize committee just went, fuck you. This thing is disgusting and filthy. Um, <laughs> We are not going to give this damn novel the Pulitzer, and so he didn't win the Pulitzer that year. But he—I mean—clearly he deserved it, and he had like the hippies just completely obsessed with him, you know, for for obvious reasons. The idea of trying to trying to disconnect himself from that, uh, I, I think, is is not unreasonable. Mm. Um, so I think that's kind of where some of the um, antipathy towards being photographed and and giving interviews and stuff kind of comes from. I know that P. T. Anderson, you know, spoke. Uh, very highly in terms of like being a, a drawing on the long goodbye, uh, Chandler's long goodbye. I mean, and and we know that there was this long collaboration between Altman and P.T. Anderson, so I mean, there's no way that, that the Gould film doesn't, uh,
0: well, oh, yeah, this, I mean, you, know, you, you see yeah. it like the plot basically follows the long goodbye, well, yeah. well, in parts because there's so much more going on in this film that you right. just get sort of more hints of it scattered throughout the film, but I mean. There's there's a lot similar like of course getting the the rich guy into the mental home and uh, getting all his money and
1: well I mean getting stuff. getting the guy into the mental home and then the sorry just finished my scotch so I had a little uh you know <laughs> uh oh that was delicious Lafroy, <laughs> man this great stuff um no yeah. the, the idea that um. Not only is there a um, you know the kind of mental asylum, the booby hatch, you know, as they call it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have uh, the uh, private eye infiltrating it, you know, in, in yeah. kind of a similar way. I mean, um, lots of the pieces of um, I mean, Pachana is also a heavily like metatextual writer. He's very um, interested in kind of playing with genre troops. I mean, Vineland, his 1990 novel, literally has uh, ninjas through like a like 45 <laughs> pages of the novel. <laughs> or about like this, um, this like hippie chick who goes and like joins a group of ninjas in Japan. Like uh, you know, um, there, there's a lot of crazy shit. Um, Vineland is the one that uh, uh, PT Anderson was had, had was trying to adapt that for years and just could not crack that one. It's 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 nuts. Um, so
0: so um, he, he he probably wouldn't get away with it now. He, he he probably could in the nineties after Tarantino, if he, if you want to stick ninjas into a crime film or whatever, you know, like, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it's just like, and and it's just like, it's part of this world. I mean, it's just like, oh, and they're just ninjas, like, you know, it's the thing. I mean, it would be hard to imagine trying to do it. I mean, uh, what I'm saying is Inherent Vice is actually fairly subdued for a on novel. The novel itself is kind of lesser Pinchon. I mean, I'm not going to to defend it as like the greatest thing he ever wrote. I I read it once. It was, it was an interesting read. I I do want to reread it at some point, especially now that I've seen the movie enough to kind of, uh, yeah, you know, I really want to go back and explore the original text. I, I I read a few pages of it just to kind of like kind of get a sense for it again. It is it is remarkable how closely P. T. Anderson kind of used to it, at least in those first few um, first ten minutes or so of the film. I don't think this is the greatest P. T. Anderson film, and I don't think it's the greatest Pinchon novel. And so um, you know, I I do see the criticism of, of you know that that ultimately it's a. Even beyond, even if you accept the kind of like shaggy dogness of this, it's a yeah. little, it's a little thin, you know. It's a little, it's a little all theme and no, and no character to to some degree. You know, it, it is kind of playing with some stuff. You know, while the performances are, are amazing and the direction is phenomenal. I mean, that's just what P. T. Anderson does. Is he yeah. gets great actors in a gives them great things to do and then shoots them in this phenomenal way. We're almost spoiled by PT Anderson. It's like, you know, when you say like, yeah, inherent vice might be PT Anderson's worst film, but it's still pretty fucking good. You know, like it's, it's, it's not a, uh, it's certainly not a a terrible thing and certainly not a terrible adaptation. Uh, You you say that you say that there's just too much, there are too many characters and, and kind of too much kind of stuff going on. And, uh, I, I mean, I wonder. Did you appreciate the kind of shaggy dogness of this? Did you, or, or was that did, did you kind of rewatching it just kind of go? I I really just want you to get to the fucking point already. Was that kind of, um, of
0: yes, yeah, sort of because uh, watching this, of course, when when you talk about the long goodbye, uh, the film version, you you can't really talk about that film without talking about the Coen Brothers' Big Lebowski, which is right. pretty much a direct Chandler ripoff as well, right. um, and that is a shaggy dog story. Like to to the nth degree, and that just does it so much better. And that one's a straight up comedy. Like th- there yeah. is there there is comedy in this film, but it's more of a comedy drama kind of thing.
1: He throws in kind of slapsticky stuff, like the fast motion stuff. Yeah, and the, yeah, and the, you know, yeah.
0: And 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 I think maybe there's a maybe a little slight balance problem there, by the way, between the actual serious stuff and the comedy in the film. But uh, I'll let that go. But I just felt like I was watching this, and it's like. I've seen this film done better in *The Big Lebowski*, and that film got to the point. That film was not distracting. I could follow everything going on there. There was there was, there was quite a few characters in *Big Lebowski* as well, but mm. but for the most part, it's much more simplified. And I don't know, maybe
1: I think it, *Inherent Vice* is unquestionably a better film than *The Big Lebowski*, but I'm not a huge uh, *Big
0: Lebowski* fan, so I, I would I would I would disagree on that.
1: The Big Lebowski, I mean, I, I, it's almost like I agree with you to the point of like, yes, I agree. The Big Lebowski has its plot. It does its plot. It does the shaggy dog thing, but you're always kind of on this kind of forward momentum. The film basically begins and ends kind of where you expect it to. And it's kind of just about this character and this these, this kind of world mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, it has no kind of larger agenda. It doesn't have a... It oh, doesn't no. Have a it, there's no There's no bigger picture. Whereas Inherent Vice is all about the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, so and, if, and...
1: If you don't care about that bigger picture... I understand how this film feels kind of pointless.
0: Well, yeah. I no, I don't. I don't find the film pointless. I, I do understand the bigger picture, and I appreciate that what's the film's going for. But I still feel like the film just has too many distractions going on. I, I feel like there's just too much stuff going on in the film for me to really go. This is great. This is right. this is really getting well, its well, point like, across.
1: I mean, like the Martin Short character, the Rudy Blatnoid.
0: Yeah, that that um, whole you could sequence you could is, cut
1: that entire sequence. I mean, yes. the one thing it does is, I mean, it, it has a plot motivation because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of ultimately um that's where you know you first kind of enter the Golden Fang, and that's kind of where you you kind of see the um, the dentist. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, kind of thematically and kind of like, like connecting to the bigger picture. But ultimately, all of the crazy drug fueled stuff with the with the Martin Short character and all of all of the the stuff. The other thing is it connects to the daughter Japonica Fenway, um, which is you know which connects to the to the end of the film yeah. um, a little bit. But but I mean, you could cut that entire sequence. I don't yeah, yeah. disagree. You could cut a good ten minutes right there.
0: Um, I, I I will say this: I like that uh, the two uh, female Asian characters in this film are both super kinky uh, and hot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know there there is the the pussy eater special. I made sure to include that in the, yeah. uh, in, the in the in the plot summary. Yeah, I
0: I would, I would pay I'm fourteen. the element of the film,
1: fourteen ninety five. Yeah.
0: yeah, fuck yeah, I'd pay that.
1: <laughs> I said nineteen ninety five earlier, but I had it in my notes is fourteen ninety five. I just missed it. So you know, I apologize. <laughs> My plot summary is now lost. You know, uh, it's it's lost all value.
0: Um, I I, Do I have to become that's
1: that's fourteen ninety five in um in nineteen seventy dollars though. So you have to, you know.
0: I I'd still pay it probably. Um, I I do I do got a question though. Do I have Daniel? Do I have to become a successful dentist connected to a drug syndicate to get a hot Asian secretary? Is is that what I have to do to get a hot Asian secretary?
1: Well. I'm pretty. I sure, uh, no. I'm just gonna say no. Okay. Like, um, you know, one, one of the, in fact, I would think that's almost orthogonal to the idea of like how to get, you know, how how to employ an attractive Asian secretary. If
0: that's so, so right. if if I was a successful stoned private eye, could I get a hot Asian secretary? That that might be a possibility. It,
1: it is a possibility. In fact, okay. really, if you, all you all you really need is like the ability to employ people, like uh, with, mm-hmm. with a. Uh, you just have to amass capital around yourself enough to uh, pay someone uh, who you can hire for your choice to uh, sit at a desk and answer your phones for you. All you need is more money, and the way you choose to um, capture that money, you know, is ultimately is up to you.
0: I'm telling you right now that woman would never have to answer a phone in her life.
1: <laughs> you know, it, it might it might be cheaper or it might be easier if you're interested in in, in, in having a. Uh, beautiful woman near you is to actually just seek out beautiful women and be charming and intelligent around them and you know perhaps uh, one of them might might deign to fuck you without you having to pay them. You know, that that is a possibility. Wow in fact, you really... that would that would be the Sportello way. You know, I think I think really what you're doing is you're you're engaging in the Wolfman way here.
0: Know, this, yeah, I, I probably you're, yeah. you're
1: you're becoming a member of the Golden Fang, and I think this is this is important. I mean, this is this is kind of the thing with the film is that you know the dopers in the in, in the sex fiends are um, they they live their lives authentically, kind of untouched by the uh, by the ravages of capital accumulation. Whereas uh, I think that the um, you know the evil people in the film are the ones thinking like, what do I have to do to get a uh, to get the the Japanese girl to fuck me. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you heard it here first. Daniel Dan wants me to become a doper private eye.
1: I, I do. Actually,
0: <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> as long as I don't get beat up by fucking Josh Brawlin, because goddamn, that guy could probably kick the fuck out of me. I don't, I don't or, want that. Uh, you
1: want know, or Puck Beaverton there, you know, the guy with the swastika <laughs> tattoo, you know. You, oh you, yeah, that you know.
0: and that guy's an actual UFC fighter. That's Keith Jardine. He's a he's a oh, he really? okay. yeah. I, I mixed martial that, artist. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he's good in the film. I I I was I was kind of you know, especially the uh, you know when he has that that bit from um, the the Leary novel or the Leary book you know where the, with the uh, you know PCP slams the door behind you you know sort of thing. He's I, very
0: I he's very fucking effective, like very menacing in that because that's that's the like basically the one scene where the film really gets fucking serious. Man, he he is menacing in that in that part. Like just how calm he is. Like he's he's he says. Aryan nation guy with a fucking swastika right on his fucking face, tattooed on. You expect him to be wild and crazy. And this guy is just like calm as fuck. And he's like, yeah, I just gave you pure heroin. You're fucked. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm eventually going to kill you. I'll be right <laughs> I'm back. i
1: stepped on by the white man, you know, like, yeah. I mean, he literally kind of gives that line and it's, it's such a, it's such a, like uh, it's a, it's a great little moment. I mean, it is this moment of genuine menace right towards the end of the film. In a film that's lacked a lot of that, i mean it kind of has this kind of sense of general foreboding i mean again, I think it's intentional, but i i mean I think it's a criticism of the film is that you know this is kind of a private eye film that doesn't really have any of the traditional thrills that you would expect a private eye film to have no i i uh, what do you think of the Adrian Prussia what do you think of uh, i mean i think it's a, it's kind of a one two punch where where Beaverton and Prussia are kind of you know the yeah. You get in that very brief scene exactly how menacing they are,
0: you know? I, I wanted I wanted more from him, uh, especially from Prussia. I, I just wanted him to be a presence, at the very least, in the background and the characters talking about it. I, I wanted him to be, because it ends up, in minor spoilers, he ends up being, we find out he's the guy who killed uh, Josh Brolin's partner, and that <laughs> explains a lot about his, his character as well, his motivations in the film. I wanted a little bit more of that in the background. I wanted to know a little bit more of that. Even if, even if you don't give away the fact that he, he, he eventually was found out to be the guy who killed his partner, I just I wanted some sort of menace from him in the background throughout the entire film. I would have liked that a lot more. Yeah. Um, just just something a little bit to focus on to, to keep the plot going. The, the few moments that those two characters actually have on screen at near the end of the film, incredibly effective like actually that's probably for the most part as far as the narrative goes probably my favorite section of the film is just that that bit and um that's
1: definitely when the film i mean we we kind of are discussing the film as a crime film you know we mm -hmm. kind of put it in a kind of noir thing and i mean you know i i do it is kind of funny because we kind of ended up starting with m which wasn't really kind of part of the series but we kind of have included it. And now I'm almost like, I almost kind of want to call inherent vice to something else, even though I kind of, I kind of said we're going to end with this and this will be kind of a a nice thing to kind of end with because it is kind of drawing from some of these same threads. But I think it's the pleasures of this film are so different from, from the, from the noir films we've been looking at actually remind me, I want to come back to Bogart here in a second, but um, I think that I I think that you're right in terms of it would be more um, kind of compelling if we got a better sense of who the Prussia character was and kind of mm-hmm. kind of a more of the menace earlier in the film, I think part of the point though is that he's completely under the radar, you know, yeah. for for Marcello. I also think that part of the point is that you kind of run into him and he's the the biggest kind of physical threat we we meet in the film. He and he and Beaverton, obviously, yeah. um, you know, they are um, they are. <laughs> Puck Beaverton is a great name. I just want to say Puck yeah. Beaverton. Like, you know, obviously, that's kind of the big, the kind of scary, threatening scene. But ultimately, this guy's a loan shark. This guy. Yeah. I mean, he's a hired killer, but he's not. Like, I mean, he's just he's he, he's well, scum. Well, he's a lowlife. life.
0: The yeah, real threat
1: in the film is the the big rich asshole Fenway guy, um, mm-hmm. who has the who has the meeting where they're where he's uh, kind of negotiating for. Uh, Toy Hardigan's life and uh, for, well, for the yeah, twenty kilos of heroin. Yeah, you well, know, I got the, that's well, the real threat.
0: Yeah, and I and I got the sense that that guy is like a super connected crime boss, and he's one of the smartest crime bosses because he's a legit bit business, businessman who has kept his name out of the fucking circles as far as crime goes. Like he he is like a he's essentially like the spider at the center of the web.
1: Well, like, one of the things that the film does, and I and I think, and one of the things that. You know, you know the, the idea of kind of getting them coming and going. The, the, the vertical integration stuff. And the fact that this is a language that's taken directly out of, like, corporate America is not unintentional. Mm-hmm. Where the, and the fact that it's connected to corporate America, you know, that language is the point. The point isn't, like, this guy's a crime boss, and he's, like, kind of a, a legitimate businessman on the side, or he's faking being a legitimate businessman. The point is, at least for kind of the, the penchant, is it's all the same fucking thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. The point is, it doesn't matter if this guy's a quote unquote legitimate businessman or not, or whether he's selling heroin. This guy is a fucking douchebag asshole who's you know oppressing the larger population. And if you agree or disagree with that political stance, that's fine. But I mean, I, I think that that's kind of the point that ultimately is trying to be made is that yeah. this guy in a suit is the threat by definition because mm-hmm. it's this wealthy guy in a suit. Um, he even has the line you know, um, you lost. <laughs> You know you lost any sense of me respecting you the second you paid rent, you yeah know? <laughs> um, which is i mean which is absolute- which is you know, devastating it 's basically like you're part of this system, whether you want to be or not, yeah. and the second that you came up a- became a part of the system you're compromised, and your ideology is worthless, and your life is worthless, and that 's what you are to me um I mean he crushed Bartello like a bug in that scene like like mm-hmm. I mean he doesn't have to be like a threatening guy with a baseball bat. And the fact that like this kind of thing has been kind of hidden from us through the film, that we don't get that, that it's sort of mm-hmm. a kind of bumbling detective story through, through a lot of it, um, I think is the kind of, you know, is the kind of message of the film, you know, um, yeah. I, And whether you like that or not narratively, I think dramatically, I mean, I, I agree dramatically it, it loses a bit, you know, it could be,
0: it could be better, better handled
1: but i think thematically i think it really really works
0: i will say i like the reveal of him better than i do like the the sort of you know last act reveal of um of of the two heavies i think his the, the sort of surprise reveal of him works a little bit better for some right. reason i don't know why but it does i was i was going i was going to ask you um maybe unless you had something else to add to that, uh, we could move on to sort of to, to the characters for, for a few moments. And
1: yeah, no, I'm uh, there. are a lot of characters. I'm totally down with chatting about um, all of them. Really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> we're, go we're as long gonna, as you want to go. We're not going to talk all of them, but uh, generally, what do you, what do you think is sort of the principal performances in this? Cause I, I think they're all incredibly strong. Even, even though, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is mumbling through the entire thing. His character feels very authentic and it feels like that's, how he would talk in real life and that's what he would do and, and I like the duality between him and uh, Josh Brolin's character where there is this weird respect between them even though they're basically both on two different sides in a lot of ways at the same time there's just you, you see like in and I picked this up in, in different sequences when they're talking on the phone by the way they have the same talking phone <laughs> oh do they have the same phone? I, I have missed that detail they have the same fucking phone, which I found really funny. But in one scene where one guy's drinking, the other guy's smoking, and then in another scene, they're like basically kind of doing the opposite. Like They're sort of mirror images of each other to yeah. some degree. And then when the final scene with them two together in in, the, in his apartment, where they're talking at the same time and saying exactly the same thing, it's like... Well, it's, it's after
1: he smokes weed, right? Like he, yeah, he, he smokes the joint. Yeah. He takes a hit, and then suddenly they're they're connected they're, yeah. they're they're intimately connected i mean those kinds of details are never accidental for Panch like that mm-hmm. that is very um I can't remember if that details in the book or not, but if it is like like that's that's very very um you know um thematically appropriate in terms of the the idea that through the experience of the drugs and through the experience of the counterculture you know that these ideas just kind of come unbidden almost i think i think that you know the message of the hippies was that the the drugs will set you free that they will kind of take you out of this kind of a mainstream cultural acceptance sort of thing and where you have to have a buzz cut and a wife that hectors you and have (laughs) kids and you know that sort of thing i think that uh that was kind of the point of the hippies, and I, and I, I mean, I am not a, uh, you know, I, I enjoy my alcohol. It does, it does a great job for me. I don't hold anyone's uh, choice of vice against them. I'm not a drug user, so you know, I, I can't, I can't speak to that personally. At least, you know, illegal drugs, et cetera. You know, I'm, I'm not trying. Again, I'm not trying to judge that, but I, I don't, I don't. Yeah. Uh, I, that, that isn't my experience, and I, I wouldn't want to say that, like, you know, doing heroin is the way to, like, you know justify your existence like the, i think that that's one thing where you know i think that that the worst of the counterculture did did get it wrong on that i think that you know yeah. drugs uh you know i, I think that drugs are uh, vilified uh unnecessarily vilified you know for in a lot of politicized ways you know i mean we we know that uh, i mean essentially you know the nixon administration kind of came out i mean a member of the nixon administration essentially came out last year and said yeah we totally like vilified marijuana because the we could vilify the hippies and we vilified heroin because it meant we could like oppress black people. And that was, that was the whole reason that like drug policy in the United States was set the way it was, was, was bash the hippies. Um, Yeah. So yeah, the hippies were right. Um, I don't think that drugs are like a doorway into a better understanding of the universe. Timothy Leary was wrong. (laughs) Timothy, Timothy Leary, Timothy Leary had some good ideas and he had some bad ideas. And the idea that like, Doing a whole bunch of LSD was going to teach you about the universe. Uh, maybe it teaches you about yourself, but I don't think it teaches you much about the universe. But you know, yeah. that's just kind of where I go. Um, I do really like Joaquin Phoenix's performance. Kind of going back to kind of what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I mean, I've heard people kind of give Josh Brolin some shit for this.
0: Um, you know, I, and, um, I don't. I don't see it because, man, I I fucking love it when he plays these characters because every time I see him play a character like this, and he does. Like to be fair. He does do a lot of sort of straight man, tough guy characters like this, you know, sort of establishment mm-hmm. kind of characters, detective characters. He did in gangster squad. There's actually a, there's actually a bit of a hit to the movie he did gangster squad, which by the way, I don't recommend anyone seeing cause it's a piece of shit film, but yeah, I, I
1: skipped but, that one. So, you know,
0: yeah, but there, there is a plaque on the wall in the police department uh, mentioning, uh, the the name of the character that was his uh, his captain and gangster squad or whatever, so it's just a sort oh, of a nice. little kind of a meta kind of hint there. Uh, but Roland's really good in these kind of roles. And I so want to see him play—not necessarily a Nick Nolte biopic, but I want to see him do a fucking Lee Marvin biopic because this guy could fucking pull off Lee Marvin. I know he could.
1: I get—I I, I think Brolin. I think um, you know, one of my—I mean, I love him in No Country for Old Men. Like mm-hmm. that's kind of my that—that uh, that for me is like Brolin. You know, right there. At least you know <laughs> the younger Brolin. I'll—I'll <laughs> I'll say that now. um but uh, watching this, I'm kind of like I could see him playing Marlow,
0: honestly. Like, like yeah, yeah. A, you know, or kind of... uh, even more, more so, my my camera or something like that. Yeah, he
1: could definitely play my camera. I mean, um, you know, we, we we lost a great
0: <laughs>
1: we lost a great noir actor when he was born sixty years too late. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, <laughs> um, I, I think I think he could absolutely kind of play kind of play some of these roles, and uh, it's it's interesting that he's. You could almost flip these two, right? Like, you could almost see Joaquin Phoenix playing the kind of straight-laced, you know, detective, and then see uh, Josh Brolin kind of grow his hair out and kind of play the the dope fiend, you know? Well,
0: yeah, because um, when you think about... uh, There was two other people that were uh, up for casting for um, Brolin's part, uh, Michael Shannon and Jim Carrey, of all fucking people, apparently. (laughs) So, I mean... If 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 PT Anderson was thinking of putting those two in the in the role, Michael Shannon, who is kind of like the Christopher Walken of this generation, mm-hmm. you know, like gives very uh, kind of off kilter performances and stuff, like th- those those two guys aren't straight men at all. Like no no, no. Fruit, so I mean
1: I think that the key to what PT Anderson's been doing and, and I mean after Magnolia like basically Magnolia was his big like um, epic. Everything is planned. I know everything that's going on in this film from from beginning to end. I have this thing meticulously laid out. I think it's brilliant for what it does. I probably don't like it as much now at thirty six than I did when I saw it when I was you know nineteen for for a variety of reasons i I would discuss that film with you at some point. I uh, you know, okay. take kind of down the line i would I would definitely do that um really we could do any p t Anderson film I, and it could fill three hours <laughs> um but I, I I think that uh, after that, I mean, he basically had to shut down that whole like side of his brain. Like uh, Punch Drunk Love, he he actually shot um, whole sequences like multiple times in terms of like trying to find like the great the best setting and like really kind of not improv like that, but but the idea of kind of like. Trying different settings and actually like shooting in different locations, shooting in different angles and different, and then kind of piecing it together afterwards in post and kind of finding it in the process. Um, we did the same thing in "There Will Be Blood," which I still might argue is his best film. I still think "There Will Be Blood" is is, um, and people focus on um on uh, Daniel Day Lewis in that, and Daniel Day Lewis is brilliant in that. But for me, it's all about the writing and the direction. You know, the, mm-hmm. that's the key to "There Will Be Blood." And um, that was another one where there are a whole like there are sequences in the trailer that aren't in the film, or that, that are uh, in the film
0: but have, has a different in
1: completely different places and completely different you know like
0: tones. Yeah, the, uh, the whole narration of the trailer is not found in the film at all.
1: Right, exactly. Um, which I guess, I guess what I was getting at is. I can definitely understand that, like even after writing this incredibly intricate script, and even after writing this thing that was, uh, I mean, just on a just on a structural level, I mean, as much as you we might have issues with some of the the kind of shaggy dog, flat, uh, flabby pacing of it, it is doing what it's trying to do. I, I think that like what you're finding is faults are, I think to some degree intentional. Like I, I don't I don't think that P.T. Anderson didn't know what he was doing. Um, I think that ultimately it's, it's just sort of like he made that decision and, and we can criticize it or not. But I, I think that like, even after he had written it and even with the kind of process of directing it, the casting was so up in the air because ultimately the whole thing is like, I'm going to find a great actor. I'm going to put them in the role and then we'll find it in the moment. And uh, yeah. from, from, listening to people talk about what the process of making films with pt anderson is like these days i mean basically um you know anderson was barely directing in terms of like actually like giving the actors like direction it was really very much like go crazy do what you gotta do we'll find it it's gonna be great and i think that goes in the uh in in the quality of the performances because i think that they found a way of kind of finding a consistent tone, but it's also through like the script kind of being written in this way and then people getting the script. And I I don't think there's a weak performance in the, in the, in the film, honestly.
0: No, I mean, um, Reese Witherspoon in this, who is one of the few blondes I really find like super fucking hot, like incredibly fucking hot. And she's really great in this. And, and I, and I like her character, too, because she's sort of that straight-laced uh, lawyer or whatever, or whatever she is, who gets off on being with the dirty hippie who doesn't wash his feet. <laughs>
1: and, Are you willing to be deponed?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can do anything you want to be. Wait, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but... I, I like the fact, like, I, I read that uh, apparently P.T. Anderson had to basically edit these two. Like, apparently only had a Reese Witherspoon for a brief little sh- period of time for shooting anyway. But apparently he had to edit these two because they have such a good apparent um, communication between each other from uh, their time on Walk the Line, apparently, that oh, yeah. he... He, he apparently had to cut these two off from just acting and doing and saying shit and 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 going outside of their lines and script and everything. So uh, uh, I find that kind of interesting. Uh, and I, I like the other sort of female leads in this. Um, Catherine Waters, Waterston is fucking beautiful. <laughs> and mm-hmm. my my god, that scene where she just gets totally naked and just well, starts should, fondling should we talk about scene? like. Yeah.
1: Um... Why not why don't you tell me what you think of that scene first? Before I, before I bring my, my my perspective, which I have very particular perspective on that scene.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I really liked it because it, it felt like, you know, again you've got that guarded dialogue between the two where they're going back and forth and they're they're working through their issues in the past without directly necessarily confronting them for the most part. They turn it into sex play at the end, which I thought was an interesting direction from what I read that does not really happen in the book so much. It's not quite as.
1: I don't a... remember it. I, I don't, I don't think it, it's quite that overt. Yeah, I, I think that really the, the kind of happy ending between um, Shasta and uh, Sports Hello is, is um, something that's kind of forced a little bit more in the film. I, I don't think that it's quite that well, overt in the book.
0: Well, by, by, the, by the looks on their faces, I get the feeling that it, it might end up being short-lived anyway.
1: But, 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 you know, short-lived is,
0: I mean, you know, like that's just kind of the nature of these
1: relationships for these <laughs> yeah, two people. but, you, you know,
0: know, she's using, she, she's, you know, old lady that, you know, every once in a while they'll get back together. But I really liked it because in that scene, they kind of work out their issues. Then they turn it into sex. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, you know, they basically work through it by the end. And I just like looking at her a lot as well, because she's fucking astonishingly beautiful. <laughs> right.
1: Well, she is, um, I, I think that what's interesting to me, and again, kind of looking, watching this with subtitles and kind of like looking at the, the details of it. She's very much talking about, um, she talked about her relationship with Wolfman, you know, mm-hmm. as, as she's, as she's kind of approaching and as she's kind of seducing Sportello, there's this sense of, I mean, she, she literally says, you know, like, you know, drugged out nymphomaniac submissives at a certain point, you know, and, and uh, she was one of many that, that Wolfman, um, you know, through his, through his power, through his money, but also like kind of a force of personality. She describes, yeah. you know, his, his, my, his hand on my arm, you know, that, that I felt invisible and, that, and yeah. that kind of um, speaks to a, a certain um, kind of subspace that's certain, um, that some people will kind of fall into, and that, you know, that that is, I felt like I didn't have to be myself. I could just kind of exist in this world, and that she uh, was kind of pawned off to his friends and um, displayed for his friends,
4: yeah.
1: and um, that, it, that it was something she did for him, and that's, that's very much a, a um, this gets, there's some problematic stuff. Where um, you know, Penchan absolutely uses uh, the, the kind of language of uh, BDSM stuff as a uh, you know kind of metaphor for uh, dominance and submission within a, a kind of hierarchical, um, kind of capitalist or state superstructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scene in Gravity's Rainbow where a uh, a guard in a concentration camp. Is actually has uh, one of the one of the inmates in the camp, one of the female inmates in the camp, is uh, he has essentially like induced her to dominate him and like ends up shitting in his mouth. Like that's that's <laughs> a, you know that's literally an extended sequence in Gravity's Rainbow. Doesn't everybody want to go want to go read Gravity's Rainbow now? Um, <laughs> Gravity's Rainbow is filthy as fuck. So, so by which I, I – the, the reason I bring it up in that context is because, uh, uh, you know, throughout Pinchon's uh, fiction, uh, there is this kind of con- – you know, he uses the, the, the imagery in that way. And, uh, and I think in a, you know, in a, in a slightly negative way, um, I think that the performance in this scene, I think Waterston really sells the relationships, um, not just the relationship with um, Spritella, but the relationship with uh, Mickey she really kind of sells that memory and then when she's leaning over sportello i don't think sportello really into this stuff i think that, that that he is kind of like like she provokes him to get yeah. kind of her fix a little bit yeah. but he is not you know he is not kind of reacting in a way that um i think it's healthy i think that the uh the 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 way that he 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 hits the way that he spanks is is um you know, it, it is an it is as is a violent thing, but she provokes him. She provokes him yeah. intentionally because she she needs some of that, you know, in her life. And uh, I think that's kind of one of those like maybe this relationship isn't going to last that long. That's the thing, you it's know.
0: Like, um, yeah, they're they're probably not going to discuss it in any great detail afterwards. Right. So it, they'll probably separate apart after a while. Yeah,
1: but uh, but she definitely kind of gets what she was looking for in that moment. She definitely kind of wants yeah. that, and and I think that you know it is. Uh, you know, I, I love her in that moment. I mean, she absolutely takes agency in that moment. And I think that is important. I, I think particularly for, you know, whenever you, you have a film where an actress gets completely nude, you know, is expected to kind of do a scene and is expected to kind of be that vulnerable and that intimate and where, you know, we're literally kind of looking at her, you know, kind of sumptuous face and, and her ass, you know, in that mm-hmm. sequence you know, there there has to be a respect in the writing, and there has to be a respect in the moment for for her to kind of get that raw. And I and I think it is one of the best scenes in the film, even without the kind of like this is just really hot element. Yeah, to it, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's absolutely one of the best character moments in the film, and and I think something that that people haven't
0: uh, I haven't seen a lot of people really talking about
1: that scene in in so much detail. So um, so yeah. I'm, I'm glad we we chatted about it.
0: Um, all right, so uh, I think we'll. Uh sort of wrap up on talking about characters because there's just way too many characters, but um, there, there, there is some uh, interest in uh, Michelle Sinclair, n- better known as Bella Donna in the porn world. And I know you have some things you want to say about that. So uh, I'll just turn it over to you. Absolutely. Um, so I was intended to write a uh, kind of plot summary
1: style, uh, summary of this, uh, this young woman's career. Um, and they just kind of didn't get the time to to uh, kind of detail that. So I apologize if my uh, my notes are, are not quite as uh, complete here. So there is a, a character in the film,
0: Clancy Charlotte.
1: Clancy Charlotte. She is Glenn Charlotte, the the deceased Glenn Charlotte's uh, wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is uh, the character who is uh, kind of a. Uh, doing the laughing gas towards the uh, middle of the film. Uh, I uh, wrote down the time code in my version. It was about a uh, one hour and seven minutes. If you want to go and just watch the scene and um, the actress, uh, you know, PT Anderson has a, uh, has a, has a habit ever since uh, boogie nights, obviously, but uh, mm-hmm. well, in most of his films, there's been at least a cameo from a uh, porn star. Um, PT Anderson grew up in the uh, San Bernardino Valley. He grew up in the Valley <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> The uh, basically where like eighty percent of all like mainstream porn is made. Uh, he has a very deep connection to this kind of subculture. Michelle Sinclair. Let me just say I know Michelle Sinclair quite well. I know her work quite well, and uh, I was uh, kind of figuring out how to do this because uh, she has since retired. She is very happy to be retired. She is very happy to. She's done a couple of uh, films. Uh, this role. She's done a couple other uh, kind of mainstream roles. She's sure. trying to kind of break into uh, to mainstream acting. I think she's perfectly fine in this, um, yeah. in this film. I think she's actually quite good in this role. Um, I think uh, it's, it's very telling. There's One of my favorite visual gags in the film is uh, she actually says she was dating uh, Puck Beaverton and his uh, roommate at the same time. <laughs> and uh you know uh sportella says well you, you're dating them both at the same time and she says oh that's my preference and then when they leave when and when she leaves there are two like bikers that are yeah. sitting there that will stand up at the same time i only noticed that on this watch through and i and i shana was uh, my wife was sitting and watching it with me and i i pointed it out and she's like oh i just thought they were her bodyguards i'm like no those are her boyfriends this is awesome <laughs> um you know but I thought since uh, there was some uh, – so the, the, the BBNBC podcast, uh, they, did a, they did Emmanuel in America. They talked about some horse cock, and mm-hmm. uh, there was some um, kind of doubt about whether we were the most perverted podcast out there. And <laughs> I, mean, I thought that what a better way, with all respect to Michelle Sinclair – as a legitimate actress and as a woman who is happy to kind of leave that part of her, not apologize for that part of her life, but trying to leave that part behind, I thought, what a better way than to kind of describe uh, some of her career for our audience and uh, make sure that um, just my intimate, off the top of my head, knowledge of this should be better than any fucking horsecock shitty scene in Emmanuel in America. So, um,. Michelle Sinclair uh, was uh, better known as uh, the porn star Belladonna. Belladonna, mm-hmm. in one of her very first scenes she ever shot, did a group ass licking scene. Um, that, thats one of her. Uh, that was uh, she was uh, well known as an anal princess. Uh, not an mm-hmm. anal princess. Anal queen she uh during a uh, brief period of a couple of years around right around the time her her son was born um she actually did a pregnancy fetish videos she did lactation fetish videos and she uh chose not to do any um boy girl scenes uh, for a period of about 2 years she uh did do some and i apologize for the terminology here but this is the terminology they were using she did do some chicks with dick scenes you know um so so there there were there were a couple of uh you know People with both tits and cock, mm-hmm. uh, however they choose to define their gender. Um, she did do some some uh, some very uh, what I what I am told are very erotic scenes with those I have not watched those, and I apologize. I first discovered her uh, in the kind of the first film she did when she came back from that kind of hiatus from doing boy girl in a uh, a film called Cock Happy, and she is very very cock happy. Um, <laughs> in the opening sequence of that film. Um, she takes Lexington Steele's fourteen-inch cock deep in her ass and, and loves
0: everything. Uh, that's the uh, big African American porn star. Is that, I, is, that uh, is that is, yeah. that is
1: the uh, the? Believe me, just Google. John Holmes has nothing on this guy. Like, let's just. <laughs> uh, I think that you know it. It is kind of a, you know Belladonna was known for doing the kind of Gonzo porn. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when the Gonzo Gonzo kind of gets a, a lot of disrespect. Uh, for being just kind of like all it is is the sex scenes, there's no kind of idea or plot or anything i, I think that's a little bit unfair because it, it really is at that point it is about the performances. and I think that what's key about uh, Belladonna's career um, as a porn actress is not that like she did all these kind of uh crazy kinky things and uh she was one of the people who was uh bringing um, some some uh, a certain amount of kink content to the uh, to the mainstream world, you know, doing like really rough sex. Um, in terms of like uh, choking scenes in terms of like uh, forced ass licking in terms of uh, you know kind of forced pussy licking that sort of thing in mainstream porn uh, at a time when that was just unheard of um, doing doing really really aggressive stuff, but also doing it with a, with a sense that she really fucking enjoyed it like i mean this this wasn't this wasn't a sense of like look at all this crazy shit i'm doing and like it's it's fun because it's crazy this was a sense of like she genuinely kind of gave a sense that this was like genuinely pleasurable you know it has, has such a huge personality in terms of the way that she does these things i i like to say you know she she makes sasha gray look like a shrinking violet um <laughs> you know uh i have i have again Enormous respect for Belladonna's career. Um, she also uh, had her own like line of DVDs and her own kind of production company within um, Evil Angel, the uh, company she worked for for many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, then kind of after she left that company, she started her own website, com. And uh, one of the um, routine and one of the kind of regular features on that was after they would hire an actress to kind of come on into a scene, they would um, do a, a little, uh, little kind of photo sets called Girls Caught, quote-unquote. And uh, basically, they just uh, filmed the girls uh, pissing in the <laughs> toilet, just in the bathroom, and it was just kind of like a little like bonus, you know, for the fans, you know. Oh, and then you get to watch her piss. Um, this is the kind of uh, attitude that Billie Donna brought to her to her work, and uh, I highly respect it. Not all of these things are fetishes of mine. Um, some of them I, I quite enjoy. Some of them I don't. Uh, the audience can be left to. Um, to wonder which or which, and uh, you know, ask me privately and after a few drinks, and we may talk about it a little bit more. But um, <laughs> I do find that Belladonna brought such a uh, healthy attitude towards her own sexual desires and brought such an, an aggressive and fun and enjoyed her, her career so much that um, she's one of my all time favorite porn stars. She appeared in the remake of The Devil and Miss Jones. Um, which you can um uh which you can find if you if you kinda of seek it out. She uh probably the, the film that she says was her favorite is one called The Fashionistas from 2004, which is uh one of those kind of like big budget, like kind of mainstream kink films. Um, so you can definitely check that out if you if you want to check it out. And um, but my favorite, my in my heart, Kai is still like the, the one because that was the first <laughs> one I ever found. So um or you can kind of google her. Um she's done uh, she fisted Jenna Hayes for the first time. If you Jenna Hayes, she she actually taught Jenna Hayes how to fist and by, by fisting her. So uh, I believe that's on uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, pirated uh, streaming video porn sites. If you, you kind of Google that, um, that's that's worth a watch if that's something that you're at all interested in, in viewing. Yeah, and there's a uh, one scene she did where she uh, took a baseball bat in her ass. So uh, huh. there's that as well. Um, and again, really seemed to fucking enjoy it. Like uh, you know, I, I can't speak to uh, you know how much of that was performance, but if it was all performance, she's a damn fine actress. So, so there's
0: um, a, so there's an alternate take of this film where he she meets up with Adrian Prussia and uh, his his uh his love of baseball bats. Uh yeah. Um yeah, yeah, there, I, there is, yeah. I, I, so that so so
1: that that little coda was entirely for a throw down to that podcast to uh <laughs> so you tell me Lee lame-ass horse cock described scene or uh talking about belladonna's career which which do you think is do i need to go further in the next episode
0: well, to, to be fair fine. i i think i think the uh, badass boobs and body count podcast said that basically the horsecock was the only thing interesting in that film to begin that's true. with that's yeah true. That's so true. uh we might not be playing on a fair playing field here but um yeah, I'm. I'm not. I have seen some of her work. Uh, I, I, of course, I had to do some research for for the for the uh, podcast. Not a big fan of most of the stuff she does, honestly, but yep. very, very, very pretty girl. Uh, and in this film, incredibly attractive looking, big expressive eyes, really like yeah, that. No. Like
1: first... It's it's really her eyes and her, I mean, you know, just in terms of her performance, both in the, in the porn stuff she's done and in, in the, in this kind of, in this role. And she's only in what, a minute and a half, two minutes of this mm-hmm. film. I mean, she's not in very much of it, but she really sells this performance. She really sells this idea. And it really is through her eyes, through her very expressive. I, I agree with that, that word. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, I mean, if you watched this and didn't know who she was, you would not necessarily go, oh, well, clearly a porn star either. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: true. Of course, of course, course, you didn't get any, uh, you didn't get any, like, she was dressed fairly conservatively. She's not wearing something where you see the big <laughs> fucking tattoo across her tit or whatever, you know? Yeah she, oh, yeah, she does.
1: She does. She is well known for that tattoo. Um, yeah. she, she's also, uh, I mean, <laughs> I love that you're like, yeah, she's dressed fairly conservatively when you get a very nice shot of her ass. Yeah, um, but, I mean, the skirt, like, you know, I mean, it's not like, she's not new in the film, but uh, you, you do get the, uh, that, that is one of those moments where uh, when Shannon and I are watching the film, we we're both kind of like, oh, and here comes the shot. Um, we both get excited, like giggling school children uh,
0: when, yeah. when that moment comes up, so. Uh, but but really, you shouldn't be throwing down to uh, badass boobs and body count. You should be really throwing down to the Rialto report at this point. Where we
1: <laughs> <laughs> now you're going to actually have me challenge the actual maestros of porn podcasting. Uh, that's a that's a challenge. I well i I
0: could probably meet that challenge.
1: But um, you know, let's uh, you tweet at them and uh, we'll see what they have to say.
0: No, <laughs> uh, I don't think I'll dare. <laughs> um yeah uh, no no one plays in the same pool that they swim in as far no. as I'm concerned.
1: That podcast by the way as long as since, since you mentioned it, The Rialto Report, one of my one of the great podcasts out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is about like kind of that 70s and 80s, you know, kind of New York porn scene, by yeah. and large. But they're like interviewing like people and talking about personalities They're talking about this subculture, but it's really about the people. It's not about like the dirty – it's not about like kind of this – I mean I kind of gave like the lascivious kind of nature of it. I mean I was Mm -hmm. trying to be respectful but also kind of talking about like let's find the most perverted stuff I can talk about just to (laughs) do it. This is really about the human experience. Um, I've I just started from the beginning because I knew this was something I was gonna love. They did an episode with Annie Sprinkle way back at the beginning, I think like episode five or something, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to listen to. Is listen to Annie Sprinkle talk about like her early days in porn. I, I think that um, you know she, she went on from from doing porn to being like a sex educator and all sorts of uh, great stuff. And um, that podcast is just it's a really really good listen. Um, you know, and and uh, if you have any interest in these kinds of issues at all, in this kind of world at all, it's it's worth checking out. I yeah. highly recommend
0: it. Definitely agree. I, I do want to mention, like, it sounds like I'm maybe being a little bit down on this film, and you know, I do have issues with it, but I will say, like, you can definitely tell that this is based on a book as well, uh, much like uh, Eddie Coyle was, but here the connective tissue is a lot stronger it's, it doesn't feel episodic at all also I'll, I'll give it that it, it does flow very well even though it flows into a lot of stuff and i feel like there's maybe a bit too much stuff it flows in between But for the most part, it does not feel episodic to me like Eddie Coyle did. So I think there's a bigger strength there as far as adaptations go. Uh, So, yeah, this is uh, the first, uh, I think you already mentioned this, but this is the first uh, adaptation of any Pinchon novel, eh?
1: He's never never allowed anything of his to ever be adapted. I'm sure there are, like, some student films that were, I mean, but nothing, like, ever commercially released sort of thing. Yeah. Um, But I'm really hoping he, like, after this, he does kind of allow, like, Anderson to make you know, some other, some of his other stuff, because it's, it's a perfect marriage of filmmaker and and writer, as far as I'm concerned, you know, uh, and, and uh, Anderson could spend the rest of his career just making Pichon adaptations, (laughs) and I would be perfectly okay with that. Um,
0: Cool thing I do like about Paul Thomas Anderson, um, like all of his films, he did this one on actual film stock, uh, actual celluloid, filmed it, um some of it old film stock too he got some like original 70s film stock and and shot some sequences on that apparently oh, wow. um I think, awesome. I think i think i think some of them mostly for the trailer that he did and i and i will say that that's, a, that's another quibble i have i hate trailers that don't have that you know have scenes that are alternate to what's actually in the film i fucking hate that i, I hate it so much I, I really hate it so much. I,
1: I don't. I don't see like holding that against the film, though. Like, no, I, no, I just, I'm not. Have I'm a, not. I'm, okay. I'm
0: just. I'm just saying, it, it, it does piss me off. Um, a uh, little little tidbit uh, for the horror nerds out there uh, at Doctor uh, Blatnoid's office. Uh, the the narration is telling us about uh, a law firm called Voorhees Kruger. So uh, <laughs> obvious nods there to Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. Um, that
1: might be in the novel, actually. That, that's a very Pinchon esque joke. I, I don't remember that being, but that could very easily, especially a fucking law firm. That's exactly how Pinchon would feel about,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: about law firms.
0: <laughs> and uh cool thing, and this is something I picked up on and actually researched to see if I was you know, uh, right or wrong about this, but uh, Doc's look is based off Neil Young from the 1970s. And the, when I first saw the characters, like, he looks a lot like fucking Neil Young. Uh, well, actually, kind of a cross between Charles Manson and Neil Young. And there's a lot of Manson talk in this well, because it's just after yeah. the wake of the sort of Manson murders and stuff. But, yeah, and there's it's also even two more th- prevalent in the book. Like
1: the Manson family, like a very like, recurring theme. Sorry, just, just throwing yeah. that out
0: there. Yes. Yeah. Uh and of course uh the excellent soundtrack in this by the way, a lot of great stuff in it. But there are two Neil Young songs in this well in this well, although they're um this film is set in nineteen seventy, but the two Neil Young songs come like three two or three years afterwards <laughs> from Totally invalidates the film. I agree. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a failure. Don't watch it. Um no I but it, it does capture that uh that sort of post hippie uh sort of feel to the whole to the whole thing yeah, yeah. And, and of course you got some other great stuff in there um Kayu sakamoto with uh <laughs> sukiyaki uh it's just playing in the background when he's talking in that restaurant with uh, with uh, josh brolin there oh nice, nice <laughs> yeah it's just, it's just in the background there and um and then it also has a really good song by the association never my love is in there as well so uh those those sort of things uh, struck me uh, even more. The soundtrack is really good estimated budget for this was twenty million came back uh fourteen point seven I don't know if that's just purely domestic, but from what I understand, the film was still kind of a financial failure overall so it, it
1: definitely did not do well yeah it's a weird film i mean selling this i mean even I, I really like the film, and I know that you kind of like it, but mm-hmm. do But like, this is not a like, how do you recommend this film to someone? You know, yeah, like, it's, like, it's
0: a hard sell. It really is. It's, it's, it's,
1: it's I'm sure word of mouth was not, was not great on this, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: and uh, if you're interested in getting it, uh, it was on Netflix for a while. It's no longer on Netflix, but uh, the DVD, uh, it's a Blu ray DVD combo pack uh, with the ultraviolet thing as well widely available from Warner Video. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at TCM for, it seems like a slightly lower price than what you can get on Amazon. So uh, if, if you want to go over to uh, Turner Classic Movies instead and buy it there, you can probably get a better deal. And yeah, um, I think that's pretty much all I need to say. About it. I, I think I made my thoughts pretty uh, clear. I, I I give this sort of a hesitant recommendation I guess um, it, it depends on what you're really looking for in a film if, if you're if you're looking to just like basically just lose yourself in the film and get swept up by the actual mood and tone of the film and uh, not worry too much about the character stuff I just I, I personally could not get past uh, being distracted by a lot of stuff so it kind of hurt it a little bit for me but overall I still like the film so um there you go
1: yeah I um you know for me it's a you know this is this is just a, a film that I'm just going to enjoy there's been, uh, I mean it, it hits me exactly where I want it to hit me and and so i I understand that I have a uh, just this, this just this aesthetic response that is just going to be positive. you know, it's not a perfect film. I agree with a lot of Lee's criticism uh at least in terms of like I understand kind of where he's coming from, even if i it doesn't bother me in the same mm-hmm. way. Um, What I love about, I mean, is that we're wrapping up, and you and I have had one conversation about this film, but I think, like, I could imagine doing this, like, Shana and I could have a very different conversation about this film, and I guarantee you, like, if Jack and James and I, um, James from the City of the Dead podcast and Jack Graham, who was on this podcast recently, uh, and I sat down and talked about this film. We would have a very, very different conversation about, you know, kind of what's going on. So, um, I think it is. I think it is a, a rich film. Mm-hmm. But I, but I completely understand if, like, aesthetically, you're just not on board with it. Um, one film it reminds me of, not just the, the Long Goodbye, the Altman Long Goodbye, but um, Brick, uh, the the Ryan Johnson, Ryan Johnson's first film. And I um, love Brick. Yeah, so. but but in the sense of like. You really have to be on board with that aesthetic. Yeah. In terms of to get anything out of it, you've got to be on board with that aesthetic. So, I actually, I, I, you know, I kind of understand why people really don't like this film. You know, I I think that people, um, you know, when we talked about Blue Velvet, I kind of had a very negative response to to Mm -hmm. certain elements of it, and ultimately, it's like David Lynch's aesthetic in that film just doesn't. I just don't respond to. Yeah. And I think that was some of what was going on with the, when we talked about Blue Velvet that I maybe didn't articulate as well as I, I wish I had. So um, I, I get that. I, I know that we have some fans of this podcast that are listening who hate this film. Yeah. I think that's great. I yeah. think that's wonderful. Um, so uh, glad you hate it. I, I think you know it's it's doing what it's what it's trying to do. You just yeah. hate it.
0: It's fine. So. Yeah, awesome, and uh, I'm probably going to sprinkle. Um, I don't know how long this podcast is going to end up being. I think we're almost close to two hours at this point, but um, I, I will sprinkle in some uh, probably two or three songs actually from the soundtrack because I like it so much. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick there, that stuff. A,
1: my my favorite piece of music in the uh, in the film is actually the uh, the track called Shasta Faye Hepworth. Um, okay. And it's the it's I mean it's kind of the obvious one that it's part of the Johnny Greenwood score. Uh, but then the uh, the one that's on the closing credits is probably oh, the yeah. one that's that's probably the the best to go out on. But my favorite piece of music is actually the one called "She Has to Faye Hepworth. Um, And uh, that entire soundtrack is on YouTube at least at the time of this recording. Yeah, there, uh, there, I was there. listening to it while I did the the plot summary, so you know.
0: Yeah, you can find uh, uh, there's two versions of the soundtrack. There's one which is of course the uh, the sort of original. A composed soundtrack for it which has 17 different tracks on it and then there's the uh the the sort of called soundtrack of uh various artists and a couple of the videos are no longer available but there are there is 17 tracks in the playlist at least anyway but uh uh tell us about your doctor who podcast there daniel well it's not really doctor who podcast anymore um, well yeah you know explain that to the folks
1: Sure. Well, you can go to oyspaceman.com and figure it out if you're so inclined. But I do a podcast called Oyspaceman with my wife for about two years. It was a uh, kind of exclusively Doctor Who podcast. We've since tried to expand it. Um, we're going to have different tracks, so uh, we're doing a Red Dwarf. And um, we were supposed to get a Firefly episode out this week, but uh, due to uh, you know kind of insinuating circumstances, that just didn't quite happen this week. So uh, unfortunately, uh, maybe next week we'll put out a Red Dwarf and a Firefly, but we are still going to do some Doctor Who. Um, eventually, Lee and I are going to come on. We're going to do some Homicide Life on the Streets. Um, and uh, they Must Be Destroyed On-Site is now going to be hosted as part of the OyspaceFan podcast family. So, um, you know, maybe you're listening to this on OyspaceFan.com. But uh, if, if not, uh, go check it out. It's not much right now as we're recording it, but I'm hoping it's going to kind of grow. So uh, check it out. Yeah,
0: and uh, you'll listen to the trail at the end. They'll tell you all the different places you can go to find us. There's a multitude of places to find us at this point, and how to get in contact with us and all that good stuff. And uh, Don't go to yeah. the Facebook page. That That's really, don't, that's whatever you do, don't go to the terrible, Facebook page. It's a terrible place. There, there be dragons. Um, yeah. Um, there will be photos of my notes for this episode. Don't, <laughs> don't ever, don't ever do that.
1: <laughs> I was accused of being serious <laughs> on on the thread. I'm like, "No, no, 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 never."
0: No, no. <laughs> Terrible. Uh what a what an insult. Um thank you Daniel for joining me and thank you everyone for listening and we're going to get the fuck out of here. Oh, oh excuse me. Goodbye. Bye.
3: Any day now I will hear you say Goodbye, my love All alone. Oh, 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 oh. any day now.
0: listening to they must be destroyed on site for past episodes links to the hosts other stuff and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com there you can also find links to us at itunes and youtube as well as our facebook group link which is the best way to get in touch with us we welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched Oyspaceman.com, where you can find his sci-fi theme podcast about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.